0: two prolific ransomware operators arrested in Ukraine, and what does it take to become a next-gen CISO? These stories and more in this week's ISMG Security Report. Hi, I'm Anna Delaney. Are we getting closer to effectively disrupting the network of ransomware gangs Well, News this week reveals that two prolific ransomware operators have been arrested in Ukraine. It's a story that combines elements of a gripping thriller, dirty money, a collaborative effort from the defenders, and a Louis Vuitton box. For insight on the story, here's executive editor of Data Breach Today in Europe, Matthew Schwartz.
1: Good news on the ransomware front. Two suspected members of a major ransomware operation have been arrested in Ukraine. Ukrainian national police say those arrests occurred last week, together with searches of seven residences, including the homes of the two suspects and their close relatives. A video released by Ukrainian police shows officers gaining entry to a suspect's residence and then using digital forensic investigation tools to analyze multiple Apple laptops and a PC tower. A search of the premises also revealed a large quantity of $100 bills being stored in a Louis Vuitton box. All told, police say they seized numerous computing devices, vehicles, and more than $360,000 in cash. They also froze $1.3 million worth of cryptocurrency controlled by the suspects. Police say one of the suspects an unnamed 25-year-old, gained remote access to victims' networks, in some cases by subverting their own remote access tools, and in other cases, by using spam to distribute malware that infected targets. The EU's law enforcement agency, Europol, says that the criminals would deploy malware and steal sensitive data from these companies before encrypting their files, and then offer a decryption key in return for a ransom payment that often ranged from $6 million up to, in some cases, $80 million. Besides the alleged hacker, age 25, police say the other suspect is an accomplice who helped to withdraw money obtained by criminal means. Numerous questions, however, so far remain unanswered. For starters, it's not clear if the suspects might allegedly be core members of the group or else ransomware-as-a-service operation affiliates. These business partners take the crypto-locking malware provided by a group, use it to infect victims, and receive a cut of any ransom the victim might pay. So the two suspects were identified thanks to a global police operation involving not only Europol, but also France's National Cybercrime Center, the FBI's Atlanta field office, and Interpol. Citing operational reasons, Europol says it won't yet be naming the ransomware group due to an ongoing investigation. A Europol spokeswoman tells me that the investigators are now working on the evidence seized during the House searches. In other words, as the investigation continues, it could, of course, result in further suspects being identified and detained. News of the arrests comes ahead of a planned summit to be held later this month by U.S. President Joe Biden, aimed at better combating ransomware. Last week, Biden announced that the summit will bring together 30 countries to better coordinate their efforts to combat cybercrime and to improve law enforcement collaboration, including tackling ransomware, as well as the illicit use of cryptocurrency. At least the first meeting of the summit will be held virtually. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan tells CNN that the summit will continue to build on our whole-of-government effort to deter and disrupt cyber attacks. Those efforts have included the U.S. Treasury Department last month sanctioning a Russian cryptocurrency exchange for allegedly laundering tens of millions of dollars for ransomware operators, scammers, and darknet markets. OFAC, which is the Treasury Department's Office of Foreign Assets Control, has officially blacklisted the exchange, which it accuses of laundering illicit proceeds for at least eight ransomware operations. All of these efforts show that while the ransomware scourge may be continuing, governments are finding new ways to step up their efforts to help disrupt and deter such criminality. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Matthew Schwartz.
2: You're listening to the ISMG Security Report on
1: ISMG Radio. ISMG, your number one source for information security news.
0: In case you hadn't heard, there's a new podcast series on our sites called The Ransomware Files. The creator of the series, ISMG's Jeremy Kirk, says that organizations should feel no shame in getting infected with ransomware, and it's important to share the lessons. I spoke with him about his quest to amplify the great stories of resilience of the unsung heroes of incident response. So Jeremy, you launched a new podcast series, The Ransomware Files. Tell us about it. What sparked the idea and what's your aim with the series?
2: Yeah, thanks, Anna. Well, ransomware is probably one of the most kind of tragic and debilitating computer security stories of our time right now. So it's hurting businesses right and left, could cause a business to go bankrupt. It's causing disruption. It's very expensive and nobody's immune to it. From a media perspective, right, these ransomware stories are always kind of like, well, here's who's been infected. Did they pay a ransom? And it's always been kind of shameful. So I kind of thought of the ransomware files as being a project that would actually try to amplify like the positive, right? So there's a lot of people doing a lot of good work after an organization gets infected to be able to get up and running again. And those are really heroic kind of stories. Like they're working very long days to get things back up and running. And in those processes, there's often a lot of really good tips uh, that those companies and organizations can share. So I thought, well, why not make a podcast talking to some of these organizations that have been infected with ransomware? with a view to providing really good guidance to practitioners for how they can either help recover from ransomware or defend their organizations in advance of it.
0: Now, on the first episode, you interviewed a systems administrator with the North Shore School District in Bothell, Washington, whose network was infected with the Ryuk ransomware. What were the key insights for you?
2: Yeah, so this is a school district that was infected, and they'd actually been infected months and months prior to when the ransomware was actually deployed. So this organization had a lot of really kind of unique challenges and insights, and some of the insights were just after they were infected and they realized they were infected was trying to figure out, okay, well, what systems do we have to bring back online and sometimes there's a lot of kind of hard decisions. Like for them, it was payroll because they had to have payroll go out in four days and being able to um, not paying payroll is actually, it's a it's a legal obligation. So they prioritized that. And also there was another system, their food service system, which was this point of sale system that had run for a very long time and you know, basically had no problem. So nobody even kind of thought of it. But their point of sale system did $30,000 worth of business a day. And the system kept track of how much money students had in their kind of like lunch account. And it was also used to get Uh, reimbursement from the federal government for subsidized meals. And they had no idea until they began looking into it of, oh, wow, this is is a very important system. So those were among the two interesting insights. And also another one was they called on a lot of their service providers to help them out. And their service providers did help them out, like moving other things to cloud services and things that were uh, both more secure and where the school district had to do less hands on management of. Like on-premises software, it was more the service provider would do it, which also has security benefits. So there were loads of things in that conversation that I think would help practitioners.
0: And you've said that behind the scenes of all these ransomware attacks are stories of resilience and perseverance. How did that come across in this first interview?
2: Yeah, so when I spoke with uh, Ski, who was one of the system administrators there, he thought he was going to be fired over this. And it turns out, actually, the school district was really accommodating and really helpful. And that was the last thing on their minds. And so they were really focused on trying to build a team of people to do, you know, about 2 million different things that needed to be done. So, um, you know, they had a strokes of luck, too. Like, for instance, because they were in the state of Washington and not far away from the headquarters of Microsoft, they had a student who went to that district and whose parent worked at Microsoft. So Microsoft got involved at a point and really helped out the district do some quite complicated technical things. And also, like I said before, a lot of their service providers like also lent a hand to, like, moving other administration systems to cloud services. So it was really quite a team effort in marshalling all resources uh, that were available.
0: So presumably you're looking for new people to talk to, to share their ransomware recovery stories. Who are you looking for? What's your request to our audience and how can they get involved?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So please reach out to me. We want to make ransomware not something to be embarrassed about. And there are organizations, even aside from the one that I spoke to, that have been very forward and publicly facing about a ransomware incident. And they've even kind of done press releases and invited journalists in and and things like that. So I think it's the cliche is like, it's not if you're going to be affected, but when, but it is kind of true. There should be no shame in it. And the whole point of this podcast is to help others defend themselves or protect themselves. So if any organization wants to participate, I guarantee you will help somebody else. And I'm looking for anybody in the healthcare sector or manufacturing or even government to share their tales because all of those verticals have different little things that are unique to those verticals that you could potentially help out with. And, you know, let's embrace the good. There is good in this and we're capable of doing this.
0: And how do they contact you?
2: Contact me on Twitter or LinkedIn. I'm easy to find.
0: Okay, great. Well, if the first episode is anything to go by, it's absolutely brilliant. A a real source of education, as you mentioned, but also I think organizations have a lot to gain by sharing their stories and learning from each other. So I hope listeners will be motivated to contact you, Jeremy, and thank you so much for giving this taster of the ransomware files.
2: Thanks for having me, Anna.
0: And finally, Nicole Ford is starting her third year as VP and CISO at Carrier, the multinational home appliances manufacturer. Here she talks with our Senior VP of Editorial, Tom Field, about how her role has changed over the past couple of years and what skills will be required from the next Gen CISO. Please do register for our upcoming Virtual Toronto Summit on October 12th and 13th, where you can watch the full interview.
3: One of the things that I um, think about is that I'm an executive first, right? I'm an executive first within the organization. And so... I, along with the rest of the executive core within Carrier, need to be able to manage through the changes, um, the the threat landscape for me, right? And and the digital landscape that continuously changes. I'm an executive first. I'm a CISO second, right? And that's my job is to defend and protect the organization. So yeah, I think it, it really helped me to expand my skills, right? I think that you know, the next generation CISO has to be that chief change agent, has to be a nimble and agile executive uh, that's prepared to deliver business value in any way possible, and just and be open to the opportunities that these challenges present. The CISO role is still a relatively new role and continues to change. And you know, business acumen is extremely important and something that over the last few years, we've seen improvements. We've seen the CISOs continue to change. And I think we'll still continue to see that. I think we're, we're um, innovative. We have to understand the, you know, the, the language of the business and how to op- operate in that environment. So, yes, uh, it's definitely not initially what I thought. Um, but over time, I'm like quite happy with the evolution that I've seen.
0: That's it from the ISMG Securities Report. Theme music is by Ithaca Audio. I'm Anna Delaney. Until next time.